You are listening. You are listening. You are listening to the Fly Fishing ninety seven podcast. It's very effective. You get some big time and. But I, um, so I did a bit of that, but I, I, like I always prefer to side fish. So I ended up just sort of wading the bank or um, wading the river, trying to find the ambush points where the fish would be. Um, and you can sort of tell that from the boil because they're pretty big, they push a fair bit of water and you can see, it's all side fishing, it's clear. You can see them swim past you sometimes and you go, oh God, you just watch the fish that's sort of 30, 40 inches swim past you. Um, so you can target them by sight and I was just using an eight weight and then um, floating line and just punch out a um, cast with a small streamer in, in front of them and they're very very aggressive like once you if you get the fly in the in the right zone they're, they're actively hunting uh, when they're switched on and they'll come after it and um, it makes for some absolutely amazing uh, fishing. Welcome to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast, featuring interviews with passionate people within the fly fishing industry. We focus on guides, conservation, resort managers, gear, and talented fly tires bringing usable information to fly fishers. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by The Fly Crate. Theflycrate.com is your source for all things fly fishing. The Fly Crate offers a monthly fly club. We select patterns every month for your home waters. With membership, you'll receive flies created to match the hatch in your area, along with the Fly Crate's guide magazine, the convenience of having flies delivered right to your door, some sweet stickers. Discover new patterns and start stocking your fly boxes now. Theflycrate.com Here's your host, Mark Hopley. Welcome to this edition of the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Really happy you chose to join us tonight or today, wherever you are. And we're going to head down under. We're going to head down to Melbourne, Australia. We've got Rick Wallace on the line. Now, Rick has, we got a lot, a lot of ground we can cover with Rick. So he has spent time fishing the waters of New Zealand, Patagonia, Tasmania, Japan. He's been published in Fly Fishing Life magazine, Hokkaido, he spent five years chasing taimen. I didn't even know there's taimen there. We're going to talk about that. Trout, char, salmon, um, involved in the fly fishing movie Predator, founder of Tackle Village. He's got this hook selection comparison tool chart that I think is a fly tire. I think we could really, we can dig into this. Hey, Rick, thanks for coming on the show today. No worries, Mark. An absolute pleasure. So, uh, you know the drill, man. We'll get into all the good stuff you're up to, but first I'd like to start at the beginning how did you discover fly fishing? Yeah, happy to chat about that. I um, so I grew up in in a regional area, um, just at the foot of some mountains in in Victoria in Australia, and um, that area is like Australia has some trout fishing, but it, it's not brilliant for it. But this this area where I grew up was one of the better spots for trout fishing, and and my dad was a lure fisherman, so I. I'd go out fishing with dad and throw the, you know, the little red selters and lures like that, spinning mm-hmm. lures. Mm-hmm. So we chase a trout with those. But um, I discovered in, in um, his shed one time that he had this um, fly rod and I sort of wondered what it was. And it was a, it was a big sort of lake rod. It, it was carbon fibre. It must have been one of the early carbon fibre models, but it was sort of a big, I, I don't know, must have maybe a six or seven weight. And, and I, I tried, um, we actually caught some fish from, other streams and transplanted them into a stream that ran through our property. So we had some sort of um, almost pet fish that um, I could fish for in that stream. And I, I just started trying to fish for them with this 
giant cannon of a fly rod that the creek was you could almost jump across but um <laughs> started catching them and um just became addicted to it from there um and just yeah kept up my pursuit of it that's awesome i i i think a lot of fly fishers can relate to that like having i have this dream where it's like okay i got this stream in my backyard or this pond in my backyard stocked with 10 pound trout and it's fish on all day it sounds like you had a pretty good gig there. <laughs> yeah, it was good. They they never grew to um, a great size though. Um, it was the, the stream was a bit marginal to be honest because it it gets quite hot as you know in Australia in my part of Australia. So they go a bit dormant in summer. Um, but I think the biggest they probably got was maybe ten. 12 inches but it, for me that was enough like oh, i was just happy just chucking the fly and, and watching him eat it i mean that's sort of i think going right back to then that was where I, my love of sight fishing um was was generated in just watching these fish swimming around and, and eating the fly it's just hmm. magic i know we're spreading our wings a little bit when you say they go dormant in summer <laughs> that just i'm sorry but that just sounded funny to me and i get that's oh. your winter right it's actually the stream that the river temperature would just get too hot. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like it's so oh, sorry. It so so I'm I'm upside down on that one. Never mind. I, yeah, I just realized. Yeah. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like they'd still look, you know, feed and dusk and what have you, but um, the water temp would just get a bit hot um, for right. them in the height height of summer. Okay. That's yeah. why a lot of Australia's best uh, rivers are mainland Australia's best rivers are tail races. Um, either up in the mountains or tail races, because you don't have the same issue with the water water getting too hot. So your winter is what months? Uh, our winter is running June through August. So June through August. I mean, but you're still fairly warm, are you not? Uh, yeah, it's compared to BC. Um, yeah, um, probably minimum. The worst minimum temperature would be 10 degrees celsius in the in the day in mm. winter in melbourne yeah that's so not right. too bad yeah that's, that's you guys a... are celsius aren't you marking we are we are most of my yeah. listeners probably are in fahrenheit so 10 ah, celsius okay. would be what i'm really bad at this game but <laughs> me too 20s like 70 i think somewhere in there uh-huh. so mm-hmm. yeah anyway um so I want to dig into your, you know, who, who did you learn from? So when this passion for all things fly fishing or, you know, when you, you started really getting into the sport, who would you kind of credit as your mentors or where did you learn? Yeah, good question. I, I sort of muddled along on my own for a long way, um, I've got to say, because we lived in this uh, tiny town at the sort of end of a dirt road and there was only 800 people in the town and, I live six kilometres out of the town, so <laughs> there wasn't a, a huge number of people to sort of um, whose brains you could pick. And obviously, we're talking the pre-YouTube days, um, so I'd just go with my dad usually, and um, he'd fish lures and I'd fish flies. And um, some, you know, you know, when you're fishing lures, the fish need to be aggressive, and you know, he'd have days when my, it sort of really validated my decision to pursue the flies because he'd have days where. You just couldn't catch a fish on the lures because they weren't in a aggressive mood. But obviously with fly fishing, you've got such a diversity of things you can present to the fish that you can always, almost always manage to hook up. Yeah. Um, so I learned from Dad, but I also, casting-wise, I did take some lessons from 
um, some guys in Melbourne. When I moved to Melbourne, which is the capital city of um, Victoria, to, um, to to go to university. And while I was at university, I, I did I needed to clean up my casting, so I did do some lessons um, and um, just got those sort of problems with your cast ironed out. So it, you know, hopefully, becomes second nature, mm. which I think is a really good thing to do. Yeah, no, it, it sounds like you, you, you put a lot of hours in. And also, I mean, you say you were like six or 12, 12 kilometers away from the nearest city, so it's probably fairly quiet. I'm, I would imagine you, you wouldn't have too much issues finding open water. No, not at all. Yeah, I don't think we very rarely even saw another fisherman, fisherwoman, yeah. How big is fly fishing in Oz? It's big because... Um, we have a world-class fishery in Tasmania, mm-hmm. uh, largely still water, but some great, uh, great um, stream fishing too. So, it, so it's huge in Tasmania, um, and saltwater fishing along um, both the east coast and the the west coast is is very popular. Right. But uh, you know, it's still a fringe. Maybe I'll call it a fringe um, branch of fishing compared to the lure fishing, sure. which is really really popular in Australia. So here's a few questions for you. Get you off your game. Find out what you're all about. <laughs> when you, when you're driving in your truck on your you know on the way to your favorite stretch of water or still water, what is playing music wise on the stereo? Wow, that could be um, could be anything. To be honest, Mark, I'm I, I know you do ask this question, and um, it, for me, it could be anything from country like Johnny Cash or something like that, r- right through to gangster rap or um, even Latin American music, I spent um, 12 months in Latin America um, after I lived in BC and um, mm. I love the Latin American music, Cuban music, Brazilian music. So if you press shuffle on my playlist, I, I really don't know what you'd get, but I, I think the one common thing about the music I like is it does, I like the story behind the songs, so the, hence the lyrics. I guess that's the line through right. Johnny Cash and Gangster Rap. They're both telling a story and coming from a perspective, so that, I guess that's what I like a bit in my music. Would uh, there be any Patagonia influence there whatsoever? Yeah, some Argentinian yeah. bands yeah. for sure. Cool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, just when you when you said that, I it, I spent a little bit of time there, and I I know what you're saying. One, go- you need a good playlist for Patagonia with the amount of driving, hey? Oh, it's beautiful country, but it's like going back a few hundred years, you know. Um, it is. Yeah, it's unique. Well, we'll we'll dig into that. One go-to fly pattern that you can't live without. So let's take it to your home waters. What is a mm-hmm. fly pattern that you reach for more often than not? I'm going to cheat and give you two. My favorite break the glass in case of emergency fly is definitely an ant. Um, an ant with a tiny bit of high vis is the fly for me that just gets it done when um, all else fails. Um, so... You know, I use the usual imitative patterns if it's a caddis hatch or mayfly, etc. But if all else has failed, I'll always reach for this high vis ant because um, mm. I think it just fish just love it. Um, and my favourite fly to fish here locally is definitely cicadas. We have good um, falls of cicadas and the big source of protein for fish, and the, the oh, yeah. takes are just spectacular. So, so I love fishing with cicadas. In North America, this is the year for cicadas, so you're really hitting some stops there. You're the first person that has said, in case of emergency, break the glass. <laughs> I, I, like, I like that. I get that. It's like, okay, I got this one here, and I'll try everything else, but when it's really bad, here's where I go. Hmm. 
Yeah, it's very effective. Favorite place to talk fly fishing. So is there a coffee shop or a fly shop or a pub? Um, is there a brewery? Is there somewhere you go to get your fix about fishing when you're not in your waders? Yeah, there's a good fly um, fly fishing shop right in the central business district of Melbourne called the Complete Fly Fisher. They're doing it a bit tough at the moment because we're in lockdown and all of that sort of thing. But, um, yeah, that's a great retail fly shop and i'll go in there and it's near my work so i'll go in there and you know you think you'll spend five minutes in there and you know 45 minutes later you're still there talk talking about fly fishing so i think probably that fly shop is is the best one for me it's funny uh, an online friend of mine supposed to be playing a concert there in a few weeks and and just um showed her band doing rehearsal in melbourne and said we're in full lockdown i don't know how this is going to go so is 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 this a did this just happen uh, yeah, it happened about um, two weeks ago. Okay. Um, had another uh, minor outbreak, and they yeah. just announced today that they're lifting some of the restrictions. So, good. So touch wood, we're good to go. Yeah, it's crazy times. I mean, we're all kind of struggling mm. with this, and it, you feel like you're just kind of ebbing and flowing, and it's very fluid. Yeah. It's very fluid, for sure. Mm. Um, fill in the blank for me. When you're not fly fishing, you're usually doing what? Uh, I, I'm actually, it's almost a dirty word to mention, but I, I do a bit of lure fishing too. Um, so I've got two kids, so family's a big part of um, what I'm doing at any given time. But um, if I'm confined to Melbourne and I can't travel, there's no fly fishing in Melbourne, um, I'll get out in the kayak and, and um, chuck lures around for um, various species. There's, there's probably three or four good species to target in Phillip Bay, which um, Melbourne sort of sits on. So if, I'm, if it's just a quick fish for you know three, four hours or something, I'll probably do that. Um, so fishing, um, <laughs> I've given you another kind of fishing as my uh, alternative to fly fishing. Obviously, fly fishing is number one. I'd prefer to be doing that than anything else. But um, yeah, family and lure fishing probably. Sorry, I got, it's funny, I got my phone on uh, do not disturb, but I'm still getting calls. That's unusual. Ah. Just wait for this to finish here. How annoying. It's my fishing buddy. He, we're going on a trip. We're going on a five-day trip tomorrow, so he's kind of... Uh, oh, nice. Yeah, pretty excited. Okay, I'm going to add... I'm a big um, food and wine person too, so oh, you know, shoot. if we, we'll... if I travel with the family, I, we'll try to choose a fishing destination, but you know they don't want me fishing the whole time, so we'll try to choose somewhere that's got um, some wineries and good restaurants and nice. combine well, things that way. You, you've got lots of options. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Okay, so let's talk sports now. Um, mm-hmm. Are you a are you a cricket guy? Are you rugby? Are you Aussie rules? Let's talk favorite sports teams. So who are, who are you cheer for when your team's playing? Who who is that? Uh, okay, yeah, my so I'm an AFL um, supporter, which is like Australian mm-hmm. rules football, like most people from Victoria. Uh, so my team's the Kangaroos, who um, sit bottom of the ladder, unfortunately now. But um, I guess the only only way is up. Um, <laughs> I like that. It's um, positive. It, yeah, that's right. And uh, I, I do like um, Premier League soccer, so I support Tottenham in uh, the Premier League. And I do. Um, I am a cricket fan. Uh, I like the Test cricket. I'm, I'm not so big on the One Day or the 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I'll support Australia in the Test cricket and. I don't mind watching test cricket. Good stuff. Um, biggest lesson you've learned in your fly fishing journey so far. So if you had to kind of distill down what fly fishing brings to you, what what you get out of this, could mm. you could you verbalize that? 
Yeah, I think so. Um, trying to think about it more philosophically, I think it gives you peace um, above all. Um, because I think when you're on, probably like you, I suspect, when, you, when you're on the water, it can shut out all other distractions. And um, most of the time, you know, the places you're fishing, there's no mobile phone reception, which is a, a blessing, usually mm-hmm. up in the mountains. And um, just the, the, especially fishing dry fly, but also just the act of watching the fly as it goes down and never taking your eye off it is like a form of med- meditation or sort of mindfulness. It's, um, and I think, yeah, sight fishing for me, I'm just absorbed the whole day and I'll, I'll go out and fish and um, I'll, I'll fish for hours. And, you know, when I was younger, I'd forget to have lunch or forget to drink or whatever. And <laughs> you'd sort of get to three o'clock and go, gee, I'm a bit hungry or a bit yeah. thirsty. Um, I'm a bit more sensible now, but um, yeah, I think it's just in a world where we're constantly, you know, attention span is being compressed and we're being bothered, and it's the one thing you can do where you the the day just stretches out free, hopefully free of interruptions. Yeah, that's, and that's something pretty valuable. That's well said. Yeah, and especially now, um, when when you say you're into sight fishing, are you talking mostly, you know, flats? Sight fishing? Are you talking sight fishing for for trout in streams? Explain that. Yeah, any any kind of visual um, fishing I'm into. So look, it's the ideal for me is fishing New Zealand or Tasmania. Um, NZ, it's like, uh, have you fished in NZ before? No, 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 I have not. It's on my list. I really want it bad. (laughs) <laughs> so it's a um you probably know this but for the listeners benefit it's it's a fishery where the fish are very big uh and the streams are clear but they're few and far between so what you do usually better fishing in pairs you'll walk up the river and you you'll really have to spot these fish before they spot you so you'll you'll see them um you become very good at spotting them after a while and um then you'll sort of hang back at um maybe four or five rod lengths and and cast over them and you're just watching the whole thing often you've got a spotter like your your colleague might just go up to a high bank to get a slight bit more visibility and and you'll cast over the top of the fish and then hopefully you'll see it um rise up and and grab your dry and then you've got to do the um pause on the strike and um Mm. you're usually hooked up to a to a pretty big fish sounds Um, like a little bit of teamwork involved in that there is, yeah, yeah. It's it's the one um, sort of branch of fishing, I suppose, where you are going to be more efficient as a as a pair than um, just mm-hmm. going solo. Because you know, there's always it's the angle to the water. Like in the, every foot of elevation gives you much better visibility into the water column. So when sure. you, uh, especially if you get a little bit of cloud, you can you can see fine if you're six foot on the bank, and you go down to the water and it's glassed out, and you've got no idea where to cast. So Hmm. Um, that's really good. And I think Tasmania is similar. It's a lake fishery, but, um, you're often, um, on the bank, uh, waiting and you're, you're polaroiding the fish, looking at it, sight fishing it, and then setting a trap for it by casting out in front of it. Um, right. it, it'll do a beat and then you will cast your dry fly usually out in front of it and, and just hope the fish intercepts it on its, on its beat. That's something I don't talk about a lot on the show, but um, I believe a lot in, and that's having a solid fishing partner, fishing buddy, somebody to spend time with that. It ups your game because if, if, even if you're on the still water, there's two of you trying different patterns. You mm-hmm. can really dial it in, right? So if it's if you're on your own, it's very different. But if you have a buddy or two buddies 
with you, um, usually between two or three of you, somebody's going to figure it out. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, especially, yeah, still waters in particular. Like you, if you're making three different types of presentation or types of fly, um, it's much better for getting drilled into um, mm-hmm. what, what they're going to eat. I think it's also good to bounce strategy off people as well. Like um, we had a trip um, I did with a friend to a, a lake in um, Tassie. We sort of hiked in for 10K and camped out there and um, we'd had some success but not maybe not as much as we wanted. And on the final day we had sort of two hours left and um, we could go. We went to the lakeshore and we could either turn right or turn left and, and we sort of sat down and we talked about it. We go, look, the wind's coming from the north. There's trees on that north shore. Um, there's going to be the, – there's a hatch or a fall called gum beetles which blow onto the water uh, in Tassie. And, uh, right. and we just sort of sat there and thought we're a much better chance to, to head up to that northern shore, which doesn't look as good, but um, if there's going to be gum beetles, they're going to be coming from onto that shore. So just through that process of talking that through, we ended up making the right call and, and we got up to that northern end of the lake and, and caught about sort of seven fish in an hour and then um, – then we had to run to catch our plane. But like that decision made the difference between that trip being a a roaring success and it being sort of hard work for, you know, maybe a handful of fish. We are fortunate to have Rick Wallace on the line from Melbourne, Australia. Now he's spending a lot of time fishing just about anywhere in the Southern Hemisphere, New Zealand, Patagonia, Tasmania, Japan. Um, You know, (laughs) I, something I want to talk to you about that I found quite interesting in your bio and something that I think can help a lot of us as fly tires. So I, I know you've got TackleVillage.com, which we'll talk about, but I know that you came up with a hook selection comparison tool. So in other words, when we're sitting at the vise and we're going, okay, this is a TMCO 200 or this is, uh, you know, uh, what, whatever brand of hook you choose to tie on, I think it can get confusing. So why don't you tell me a little bit about this tool that you've developed? Because I, I, I'm quite fascinated by this. Yeah, no problem, uh, Mark. I'm happy to. So I'm a fly tire, like um, many of us who fly fish, not, not a particularly good one, but um, I, I do like to tie my own flies. And I, I'd use the uh, comparison charts that we um we all use, you know, like, I don't, you know, when you run out of a hook, for example, you know, you've run out of TMCO 100s, you go, oh, okay, um, what's another hook? And you usually, like, bring up one of those conversion charts and then it, it'll tell you, oh, that's the same as, uh, you know, Daiichi XXX. Um, and, you know, sometimes you wouldn't have the Daiichi brand and there's, it was there were limitations to it. So I thought what I'll do with my side is I'll put this tool on it um, where you can, uh, we'll put a database, we'll put all that info into the, of the respective hook comparison charts into this database. And, and when you run out of a fly, you can, uh, hook, you don't have the hook for that fly. You can just put it into the database and it'll spit out what the equivalent hook is across, um, you know, five, six, seven, eight different brands. So you can always make sure that you can get that conversion um, and, and find the right hook. Right. Is this sort of no good tying a clink hammer on a grubber hook? I mean, it's the right shape, but <laughs> it tends to sink. Sure. Which is something I've done once. <laughs> well, the wire, and that's something we don't talk about a lot, is how heavy is that wire? Because the shape can be right, but if it's heavy or if it's fine wire, maybe it's not what you're trying to do, right? No, exactly, and you just watch your fly sink. That's what I did. I tried to <laughs> <Been> there, <laughs> spectacularly <been there>. unsuccessful. <laughs> and then um, some of the feedback I got on the tool um, – 
people have been great. They've been, they've enjoyed um, enjoyed using it. They want me to add a couple of new brands. So I think on the hook I've on it now. I've got Daiichi, Dairiki, Tiemco, Arex, um, Orvis, um, and a couple of others. Oh, Gamakatsu, uh, and a couple of others. And um, so people want me to add more brands. They want me to add Firehole Sticks, uh, yeah. which must must be popular in Northern Hemisphere. I don't think it's huge here, but happy to add that. And then European guys want me to add Hanak Cooks, um, yeah, I use which those are quite a lot. popular. Yeah, do you really? I do. Yeah, right. Are they are they good? Um, they're, they're yes. And and the thing I like about them is they have a lot of barbless hooks. Um, yeah, they're strong. Usually they have a pretty wide gap. It, it just depends on what you're trying to do. So. Uh, yeah, I, I do use a lot, a lot of Hanics. I mean, I know for me, I, I'm, I love Tiemco. I've had no issues with Tiemco. Me too. Um, Daiichi, I like. Um, I, I'm not a huge. I probably shouldn't say this, but I'm not a huge Mustad fan. I just kind of figure. Uh-huh. I, I mean, I've always. That's what I learned to tie on, and but maybe I, I need to revisit that because the companies change. You know, the brands change over the years. But mm. Firehole is one that uh, I've had a lot of. Um, people talking to me about. I've never tied on them. Uh, Arex is it Arex? That that one I mm, keep Arex. keep hearing about all the time, and I have not tied on them yet. That they're good. Um, they've um they're getting more popular down here, and they also have barbless. Uh, I think what I like about them too is that they keep the same model for barbless, or they ch- maybe they change the number a bit. But basically, there's a barbless equivalent for almost all the hooks. Mm-hmm. I should add a disclaimer. Those guys um, gave me a bit of money for sponsoring the tool as well. So when you go to the tool, you'll see their logo on it. Um, cool. It doesn't impact the um, algorithm. Like it still um, spits out all the hooks and gives you the choice. But they, they were very impressed with the tool. So they um, mm. came along and said, oh, we want to um, put our logo on it. So that's fine. But you know what I like about that? I, there's a lot of cutting-edge tires I've talked to that are totally on board with those hooks. So it tells me that that mm. company is up to something good. Yeah, and they're good to deal with too. They're they're you know switched on and and they're prepared to consult with with fishermen and also retailers as well to help develop their range. The other thing I was going to say um, was the other thing that people wanted um, was to say um, instead of comparing um, brands and models, which was sort of phase one, uh, people wanted to go to the um, site and punch in what they wanted to tie, like a you know terrestrial or a caddis or a um, you know, mayfly merger or whatever and have um, – or it's right through to saltwater hooks, you know, tie a bonefish fly, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So we've now got it so you can punch punch in the type of fly you want to tie and then it will give you the um, full, full range of hooks that fit that description, which is really good to use, I, I think. It's probably more useful in, the, in a way than the comparison, broad, a broader use. One thing I struggle with, so here I'm fishing a lot of still waters in British Columbia. We're fishing a lot of chronomid patterns, and people will say, well, I got a size uh, 14 on. But if if you don't tie and you just buy, when someone says I have a 14 on, that could be a 14 2X. It could be a 14 3X. You know what I mean? It, mm-hmm. the, yeah. the actual visual size of that is not indicative of the number. So I, I wish mm. sometimes we would get that more. It's like, well, wait a minute. This is a 3X hook. <laughs> so it's like, you know, it's <laughs> it's a little different than than a short shank. You know, um, I just, I struggle yeah. with that. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like everything with fly fishing, we always make the sort of nomenclature as confusing as possible, you know. Oh, yeah. You've got like 3X heavy, yeah. 2X long, etc. Et you've got, you got companies like Alec Jackson that come out with like uh, uh, the odd numbers. So it's like, it's, <laughs> it's a 13. I'm like, 13? What is, what is 11? I'm like, what is that? But um, yeah. I actually love their hooks for the record, but... Um, I just find it's, it's an interesting, it's a fascinating thing to me. So in my mind, if you substitute something and it works, kudos, but I think this chart, I like the sound of this cause it, it, I've wasted a lot of money on hooks that I thought I was buying for the right pattern. And then I went back and said, wait a minute, that's a three X shank. It's too long. It's not what I thought it was. And I'll use it for a streamer pattern, but you know, it's not going to be a mayfly. Yeah, for sure. And I think, um, you know, the more detail I could add into this tool, it's the, the better it's um, – and I'll continue to develop it as time goes, but I think it, now it's sort of 80 to 90% of the way there. It's a funny story, actually, because um, I've got no idea about computer programming or databases or stuff. It's a, it's a funny world we live in these days. So I had the idea that I wanted to do it and um, end up connecting with a Russian guy who lives like – back blocks of Russia. I remember looking up his, um, his city and it's like the, I think the steel making capital of Russia or something, hmm. um, thousand, thousand kilometers from Moscow. And he, um, very bright guy. He just, um, it t- literally took him less than a day. I just said, Oh, this is what I want to do. And he goes, Oh, um, well let's, okay. So what we need to do is, um, you know, just make them uniform across the description and put in these attributes and then create a database. And here's the search window. And, um, Oh, some people are just so clever. Um, yeah. So he, he just led the development of it, and it was the smoothest experience I've ever had. Really? See, that's super mm. cool to me because that's not my wheelhouse either, and I, I, I have mm. these ideas like if you had an app doing this or you had a – if you can combine the knowledge that you have, the passion that you have with the, you know, the – algorithms and the computer programs like there's got to be a formula there for for success on a lot of on a lot of levels because i mean i'm sure you, you're probably getting other ideas from this project too you know when you start you yeah sit back. i think so yeah hmm. yeah just to help people cut through the clutter you know i think that's yes. what we need these days that's well said shorten the learning curve so um tell me about tackle the uh, tell me i'm going to edit that <laughs> Tell me, that's the Cabernet. Tell me about Cab. <laughs> you're drinking coffee. I'm drinking Cab. This is not good. Um, and you're a day ahead, so you're going to be light years ahead of me. Sorry. Tell me, um, tell me about TackleVillage.com. Why did you start it? What's it all about? Yeah, it's um. So I wanted to do a sort of side project, you know, something different to the the work I was doing and um, I've got buddies that I fish with here and, um, you know, we take photos, we we write down our trip reports and things like that and, and so I thought, well, why don't we sort of develop this site and um, we'll see how it goes. So we've been doing it for about uh, a little over a year now and it, it covers both both types of fishing. So I have a fly fishing section and, and lure fishing um, section largely. And um, yeah, we're just sort of writing some content and I'm, it's it's mostly focused at the US, which might sound strange, but um, my writers in the US are um, ones of bass fishing guide, bass and muskie fishing guide uh, from Wisconsin and the other guys are trout mm. fly fishing What's guide. What's his name? Guy from, 
Um, so the Sean Chapin is the bass guy from Wisconsin. Okay. And um, Spencer Durand is doing um, some fly fishing riding for me. So he's um, awesome. He writes for Mid Current, and yep. uh, I think he's based in Utah. Yeah, nice he's got guy. A, he's got uh, a podcast. Oh, yes, he does too. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, of course. I did. Now, now I do recall seeing that he has a podcast. Yep. Yeah. The reason I, I, I when you said that, I, there's a we have a, a clubhouse group on fly fishing, and there's a few people on there from that area so I was, I was wondering sometimes worlds collide um <laughs> it's just funny it's like six degrees of separation but i find in the fly fishing world it's more like one or two because yeah it is <laughs> you know, yeah um so i i, I want to dig in a little bit i know you spent a lot of time in japan so i i believe uh-huh. you were there from uh for like five years 2010 i think it was to 2014 yeah, that's right. Hokkaido. So what I did not know, and, and some of the trout pictures I see out of Japan, I'm like, what is that? It is so pretty. Um, <laughs> there's some amazing looking fish. But when I had no clue there was time in there. And when you said you spent time chasing fish over 40 inches in Japan, I'm like, huh? What? Um, <laughs> tell me about that. And, and if it's offside, let's not go there, but I have a feeling you're sitting on a few nuggets. Yeah. I, I'm more than happy to chat about this. Um, J- Japan is like a, a hidden gem in terms of, um, you know, trout and salmon fishing. It's, it's, um, so maybe, um, yeah. So I went there in 2010 and I, I was the same as you. I had no idea. I thought, the fishing that you would do there would be, you know, on some pier with about 350 other people and, um, and, and that would be it. But, um, I certain soon sort of, um, realized that I I had a friend who was a Japanese, um, Australian guy who was a trade commissioner uh, for Queensland, Australian state there. And he was a mad fly fisherman. So, so we connected pretty much straight away. And he said, um, if you want to do some, proper fishing, so to speak, um, come up to Hokkaido, which is the, the northernmost island of Japan. Um, to give you some perspective, I think it's um, probably about four times the size of Vancouver Island, so okay. quite a large island, yeah. so, same, same as Tasmania for us. And it's got a relatively small population, about 5 million, but which for Japanese standards is small. Mm-hmm. So it's like the uh, sort of wild frontier for, for Japanese people, uh, like northern BC sort of thing, but... Obviously, you know Japan's a hugely populous nation. So up in um, up in Hokkaido, they have um, all sorts of interesting fish. So you have brown trout, uh, rainbow trout. You have char, lots of char species, some of which are solely exist in Japan. And then you have all the runs of Pacific salmon, and then you also have the um, the time, which is a um, anadromous uh, species, unlike say Mongolia. It's a it's a species that'll live in the estuary or a big lake and run up the rivers, um, and um, yeah, really really interesting fish to to fish for. Hmm. Yeah, that's uh, the first I've heard, and then I started kind of digging a little deeper and go, I don't know how I, I always thought you had to go to Russia, um, mm-hmm. you know, well, which isn't really as the crow flies, not really that far, no. right? So. It's not at all. Tell me about your experience fishing for Taiman in, yeah, okay. in so Japan. I, so the first trip I went up with TAC, the um, trade commissioner, and um, we fished. So, so it is near Russia. You're dead right. When you, you fly up to a place called Wakanai on the 
northeast corner of um, Hokkaido. And you, you can actually see there's an island to the north of there, which is called Sakhalin Island, which is part of Russia. So you can actually see that from Wakanai. And then you drive down the coast um, to this river, um, Sarafutsu River, and it's an estuary. Um, and that's where we've done, that's where I've done the bulk of my time in fishing. And in that estuary, you, um, it's a sort of shallow estuary that you can wade and um, and it's all wade fishing. So we're, we're jumping in the river and um, there's two ways you can approach it. You can either strip streamers uh, and my my friend Chiba who's a, comes with us, he was, he's a guide there, a friend of ours, and um, he's a great caster, he's two-handed casting. He'll blast the um, cast right across the river and strip a streamer or sometimes even surface fly. He likes to fish with surface fly and it's very effective. You get some big time and... But I, um, so I did a bit of that, but I, I, like I always prefer to sight fish. So I ended up just sort of wading the bank or um, wading the river, trying to find the ambush points where the fish would be. Um, and you can sort of tell that from the boil because they're pretty big. They push a fair bit of water and you can see it's all sight fishing. It's clear. You can see them swim past you sometimes and you go, oh God, you just watch the fish that's sort of 30, 40 inches swim past you. Um, so you can target them by sight and I was just using an eight weight and then, um, floating line and just punch out a, um, cast with a small streamer in, in front of them. And they're very, very aggressive. Like once you, if you get the fly in the, in the right zone, they're, they're actively hunting, uh, when they're switched on and they'll come after it and, um, makes for some absolutely amazing, um, uh, fishing. Total, so we did that. Total rookie Sorry, question. Go. No, no, total rookie question. I mean, are they feeding on bait fish? What, what kind of patterns are you throwing for these fish? Yeah, they are feeding on bait fish. Um, we're throwing um, open water streamers, like, you know, something that's maybe a couple of inches long, sparsely tied purple and white bucktail, or sometimes uh, mm-hmm. um, rabbit zonker in white when the water's a bit dirtier. Sure. Um, and then um, gurglers were the big surface pattern that Chiba uses. And then the, when when we Nick came up to do the um, the movie, we switched to using this this tube fly. So Nick, um, I, I might just tell you the story about Nick. So he um, Nick and I sort of knew each other, but not very well because he he tours a fly fishing film festival, or he did anyway around the world, and um, called the Rise Festival. So we'd met a couple of times at uh, at that. He's a filmmaker himself, obviously, and. Um, so he rang me up one day and he goes, after I'd written an article for Fly Life on the time, and he goes, oh, um, can I come over and do do that with you? And I said, sure, sure, and uh, whatever. I didn't think about it. And then he called me back at three months later and he goes, oh, I'm going coming over <laughs> in the next two weeks, so let's do it. And um, we organised the trip and he, he came to my place and he, he actually had this notion of Japan being sort of incredibly expensive and everything, you know, a cup of coffee was going to cost 15 bucks, et cetera, and it's largely not now. Um, so he goes, he, anyway, he came to my place. He got in at 11 at night and um, he said, all right, so look, um, I've only got a few hundred bucks left in my bank account and <laughs> my credit, credit card's maxed out. And my wife and I um, are thinking about getting pregnant, I think. And um, so this movie better work out. <laughs> well, that's a lot of pressure. <laughs> so, so we went up there and he was pleased, first of all, to discover that once you get up to Hokkaido, it's pretty cheap. Like, you know, it's, you can have a bowl of ramen for 10 bucks or whatever. And, um, 
he he met Chiba and they hit it off. And um, but he still made us because it's so far to the north. Um, the light it's light at four in the morning. And um, so day one we sort of Chiba and I thought, oh god, this poor guy. We we need to catch a fish. And um, we out, got out there at three in the morning. And um, sorry, four in the morning. And uh, we we're on the water from four. And we had an okay day. We caught two fish of um, I think sixty five and seventy. And um and he filmed them and etc. And wow. Chiba and I were feeling pretty good about ourselves and 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 Nick sort of said to us, Well, seventy five, sixty, I've called the film Predator. You know, can, is that really a predator when they reach a meter? <laughs> <laughs> and, um, so the next day we're out at um three again, four again, sorry, and um we, we managed the two eighty fives, uh, and then the final day we um we got a ninety five. Um but he also wow. got, which, which to to his pleasure and my displeasure, he got um, he watched me get um, done by one that was a meter, um, and um, this was one where we'd gone up on the bank and um, we'd fished, we fishing with this little tube fly, unweighted, um, because what they're doing was uh, they'd swim up in the channel, and then they'd herd the bait fish onto the bank, and then they'd sort of eat what they could and then peel back out into the channel in one sort of sudden ambush, and we'd seen this fish doing this ambush time and time again. So we, we crept up on the bank and I've said to Nick, oh, I've cast it, cast the tube line, I'm just sitting there and he's got the whole thing on video. He's saying, oh, I'm going, oh, do you think we're too early? Maybe, you know. And then um, just as I was saying this, this one metre fish has come in and grabbed the grabbed the fly and um, I've got him on and fighting him for maybe three, four seconds. And then um, what happened was the we're in these like reeds and the um had quite a bit of line out too much as it turned out and um as the line pulled up tight it did a figure of eight around the butt of the rod <laughs> and <laughs> the fish just snapped snapped it straight away oh crap <laughs> so he's filmed me um yeah getting busted off by by a big one but luckily we managed to catch the the sort of couple in the 90s to sort of make up for it but the Wow. To be honest, like the the difference in power between the fish in the nineties and the fish over a meter was huge um, hmm. to me, and the the guys I fish with, all Japanese guys, they said, "Oh, you can be the first non-Japanese member of the one meter club because that's what I was trying to do." They they have a little badge if you've caught one over one meter, wow. and I, so I was trying to be the first non-Japanese to enter the one meter club, but I, I'm still yet to do that, unfortunately. To put that in perspective, a meter is what like three. Oh, feet? sorry, forty inches. 40 yeah, inches, four, four, 40 inches. Four zero. That's, yeah, three feet. Yeah, that's crazy. That's I can't even imagine that. So was this... They're a part... gorgeous fish too. Oh, man. You, I, you've seen the pictures of them? They're I, amazing color. I did. I saw the pictures you sent me. And it seemed like every fish in Japan is that much prettier. Like the, the, the trout, the char. I was just like, some of them look like somebody took like a paint by numbers or a some acrylics and just kind of went to town. It's like, I, I don't know what that is, but it's pretty. They're gorgeous. Yeah. I know what you mean. That the white spotted chars like that as well. I should just say on time and obviously it's all catch and release. And, um, we, we, we're actually, Chiba's, um, lives up there and he's very actively trying to promote tighter, um, regulations, like not in terms of, you know, people fish for them and that's great, but, um, just catch and release, um, hmm. Because they are a threatened species, there's only only four places in Hokkaido that the um, time and that the sea run time and still exists. So um, some in Russia, some in um, Sakhalin, but um, the best protected waterways ultimately are probably going to be Japan because it's sort of you know developed society with um, 
you know, some protections for nature. So they're right. important fish to protect. And, oh, yeah. and I don't mind saying it's great fishing and um, where you should go because I think, you know, the more international or, or conservation-minded Japanese anglers that fish for them, the more likely that regulation is to that the, the community is going to see these fish have some value beyond yep. protein and, um, and they're going to protect them. 100%. I think uh, I think that's something we talk about a bit on this show is is like the how how important it is to get people out there because that's where the conservation dollars come in the tourist dollars and uh, we're more if you know if it's valued we're more likely to protect it. Yeah, for sure. So tell me the 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 filming of the movie Predator was that on mm-hmm. this trip or how did that what were the you know the origins of of Predator Yeah that was that was the on this trip and that that made up one of the chapters a Japan chapter um so he um I think Japan was the last chapter because it's not on a preview um it um so he'd done Barramundi which is a um, right. saltwater fish in Australia um, great fish um Queenfish, whole bunch of other fish. And I think he'd done he'd done New Zealand brown trout in New Zealand, and um, anyway, a whole bunch of big fish was his idea, big predatory fish. Um, and um, yeah, I think he basically thought that Japan would be a good final chapter for it. Um, uh, so so it, we, we we filmed it. It was great. Any GTs in that? Uh, you know? Did he do GTs? That's a good question. Yeah, that's what I when I think of predators, I think, did... I think of timing and I think of GTs, and I don't know why. But, yeah, hmm. I th- I don't think he did. I think he did queenfish, which is another sort of similar, but not as not as big fish that we have down here. Sure. Tell me a little bit. We're chatting today with uh, Rick Wallace out of Melbourne, Australia, and, and this guy's really dialed in um, on 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 big fish in the southern hemisphere, New Zealand, Patagonia, Tasmania. Spent a lot of time also in Japan, chasing taimen and the beautiful fish in that country for five years. Uh, the movie Predator, has, founder of TackleVillage.com, a, uh, a hook selection chart for, for you avid fly tires out there. Um, tell me about Fly Life magazine. So I know you've um, done some contributions t- to that mag. So how did that start for you? Uh, yeah, that, that it's a great magazine, by the way. It's um, It started with um like i was a journalist for 20 years so i was used to writing and i'd sometimes try to sneak fly fishing articles in because i worked for the paper newspaper in australia and um i'd sometimes sneak uh fly fishing articles into the australian um you know into the travel supplement or whatever but um i, I was always a subscriber of fly life and eventually i just decided i'll i'll try to write for them and and i sort of thought i had the kind of writing chops to do it but i um it was only after i'd done I think I went to Patagonia. It was the first story that I did for them. I thought I'd done something that, you know, like you got a lot of talented people that fish more than me and fish better than me, etc. Right for it. But I, I thought um, I was comfortable doing something on Patagonia because I did a big DIY trip there, and um, I did a lot on Japan because I figured that there was really no one else that um, that had a, a an in there in, in the sense of describing fishing in Japan, and and they loved it. You know, I did a, I think I did, I did Tynan. I did a piece on. Uh, Big mayfly hatch, both big in terms of numbers, but big in size. A giant mayfly that hatches in um, a lake that's filled with that white spotted char um, fish. I did a piece on that. That's called a. It's a, like a two-week hatch that only lasts for two weeks. Uh, and then I did a piece on a Japanese fly tire who um, 
brilliant tire of um, dressed salmon flies or any any kind of fly really. So I did a bit of a piece on him as well. Hmm. So um yeah, just um, wrote to them and I got to know the editor a bit, um, Rob Sloan. I think he's moved on to um, as a sort of consultant editor now, but he's a big Tas- Tasmanian fly fish, big figure in the Tasmanian fly fishing world. So. Hmm. Um, yeah, once he once he knew I could write a bit and had done some interesting things, he was happy to publish the articles. For those of he us, he teased that... me about the Japanese. He teased me about the fly tire one because the guy gave me the, some pictures um, of his flies and um, and I, which I sent through to Rob and um, and he said uh, he saw as soon as he saw the pictures, he said, "Oh, pictures are great. Well, I didn't need two hundred words, <laughs> which is just." Uh, <laughs> We don't need your uh, yeah, interpretation. We just use the pictures. <laughs> yeah, well, I get that. Um, for those of us that haven't had the pleasure of fishing Taz, t- t- what's so special about the fishery in Tasmania? Uh, good question. A, a, f- a few things. It's like a wilderness, genuine wilderness f- fishery. So once you go onto that, in the centre of Tassie, there's a big plateau they call the Central Plateau. It's about a 1,000 metres in, in height, so obviously a lot um, more alpine. Um, that's that's where the bulk of the good lakes are. So once you get up on that plateau, there's basically nothing there. Like, I mean, you're a BC, you sort of know the, the concept of um, wilderness. So once you get out there, there's nothing there, and you can park your car and walk for three days, like take your tent and walk for three days and go out to these these beautiful lakes. There's like thousands of lakes, um, all of which carry big trout. Um, and for the most part, they're pretty shallow and um, you can sight fish on a sandy bank. You can, and there's good hatches out there. There's mayfly hatches and spinner falls and hmm. beetle falls. And um, it's just a really special place, uh, I think, that lake fishery is like something it can't really be replicated because you, you are getting fish of 10 pounds. Um, some big browns out there. I've never mm. caught one myself, but they get caught regularly. So you're talking about walking for three days in the high alpine with no bears mm. or cougars? <laughs> no bears or cougars. No, there's a Tassie devil, but um, they're obviously not, not harmful. There's, a, there's tiger snakes as well, but they're pretty docile, to be honest, compared to the the ones we have in mainland Oz. Um, browns. And uh, no browns in Tassie, I don't think. We, we do in mainland Oz. Just sorry, but, yeah, that's um, what I mean. Like those, I don't want to see one of those. <laughs> yeah, I know. They're a bit uh, a bit scary. That's a good thing about New Zealand, no, no snakes. But um, Tassie, so, and it's also you can, you know, like you can do it that way and I'll do it with um, Greg French, um, prominent fishing writer here like he'll he'll go for three days and i go with him for three days or whatever but then you can't like not everyone's going to do that and you know i won't be able to do that forever and um there are lakes that you can you know walk for a kilometer or drive to or um or whatever that equally have some super fishing as well so there's there's you know it's got all kinds of fishing there have you had anything weird in your time on the water that's happened to you that you'd like to share tonight like you know, crazy fish stories. We all have them. Sometimes they don't kind of jump into your into your mind. But anything, you know, wildlife encounters. I sense you're sitting on some nuggets over there. <laughs> well, actually, um, you won't think it's weird, but one of the weirder ones happened to me in in Canada. Um, it was um, 
because we're not familiar with the bears, bears at all. So I'd gone fishing in um, Vancouver Island um, and my wife was there as well and she, she'd come along and I just said, oh, we'll just walk down to this river and give it a go. It's only like you know, 800 metres from the road or whatever. And um, we, we'd gone down there and we are fishing, fishing away. There's lots of salmon there and I don't think I caught any, but um, it um, was quite spectacular. We'd see lots of, lots of salmon and then the, sort of come around um, the bend in the river and um, and sort of look back to work, towards where we were and then we look forward and there was a guy who was sitting there with a rifle and um, like I said, you probably won't find this fun, funny or um, or strange but there's a guy sitting there with a rifle and um, <laughs> and he said, oh, how are you going, you know, and what are you, what, what are you doing? And he's gone, oh, hunting obviously and um, I go, go, what are you hunting? And he goes, bears. <laughs> and I've got bears, what is there bears around here? <laughs> and he goes, just pointed. And like right where we sort of come out of the bush to access the river, like there's this huge um, black bear, like obviously not the grizzly, but um, this huge black bear basically sitting at the path where we just walked. And, um, you know, you, you guys live with them on a daily basis, so it probably sounds pathetic. But, um, yeah, it just like a shiver ran down my spine having just sort of almost – probably walk past this bear and not even noticed it yeah that's funny <laughs> well it, it happens a lot um, well vancouver wherever there's salmon right i mean they're uh-huh. all they're all over that and uh yeah it's it's I, I i love chatting with people from around the planet because you know you guys have spiders down there that like those red backs i don't <laughs> i don't want to see you got snakes like those browns you know, yeah, we have mm, rattlesnakes, yeah. but but <laughs> those things are deadly, and uh, <laughs> you got spiders that are deadly. Yeah, we got bears, but you know what? You can see a bear coming. You you or you you you, you know can, what I mean? Yeah. It's a little bigger than a. We well, can wear the bell. Or... <laughs> exactly. You put a bell on a spider. <laughs> no, that's not going to happen. But <laughs> but I I, uh, I work I work with a lot of Aussies in the wine industry, and uh, I always feel kind of kindred spirits because it's like everyone I've talked to down there is so chill, so, so into food and wine and traveling and fly fishing and, and just, uh, enjoying the great outdoors and, and, and traveling for sure. You got, I don't know what it is about Aussies, but you guys seem to travel more than anybody on the planet. Yeah, I think that's right. Everyone sort of uses a bit of a rite of passage to, to get out of the place. Not that there's anything wrong with it, but um, just to go and see a bit of the world for sure. Mm-hmm. And I, I was no exception yeah. to that. Unfortunately, we're a bit more constrained these days. Yeah, well, hopefully this will end soon. And uh, I'm tired. I'm getting tired of saying it. I, <laughs> I think mm-hmm. it's, been, it's been a couple of years yeah. now. But, uh, you know, I, I'm kind of a, a glass half full kind of guy. Walk us through your perfect day on the water. So put on your artist's hat. If you had to paint a picture of your perfect day, mm. Rick, like what species are you chasing? Is it in the river? Is it on the salt? Is it in the still water? You know, um, what are you drinking? Who are you with? Walk us through that. I think I'll say Western Lakes. I could equally say New Zealand, but um, I'll say Western Lakes of Tassie. Um so for me, the perfect day would be um, get up in Launceston or one of the, which is the second biggest town in Tassie. Maybe have some coffee, um, bacon and egg roll or something. Meet up with um, friend, could be Greg or any one of the Tassie fishing guys, or I fish with a lawyer from work, Dan. Um, meet up, 
uh, and then drive up to the plateau, um, which is sort of an hour, hour and a half uh, from Launceston. And then um, hopefully we get up there and it's uh, blue sky. It's uh, That's more the, um, the exception than the rule. But um, let's say we get up there and it's a beautiful blue sky, um, 25 degrees, and we hike into a lake, um, have the have the tent, um, set up the tent, and just as we set up the tent, maybe get a mayfly hatch. Mayfly hatch more if it's cloudy, maybe, but um, mm. let's say a beetle fall because it's sunny. Winds winds picked up a bit, the, so the surface isn't completely flat. Um, we can polaroid into these waves a bit, and we've got these these beetles hitting the water, and just all you can see from the tents like a series of slurps and rolls as the big browns picking off the, the, these beetles um, and your um, sh- hands shaking a bit. Maybe you um, thread up the rods, <laughs> tie on tie on the beetle pattern and um, go and have an absolute ball and watch these um, surface takes as the, as the fish um, go for these beetles. Hmm. And then maybe if you'll indulge me, we, we, we go overnight and um, set up a fire, have a glass of red and um, cook up something nice. Might might be a fish, like a you know lake fishery. You can take a fish and not feel bad about it. Um, and get up in the morning and do something which the um, trout seem to only uniquely do in Tasmania, which is this phenomenon called tailing. So they'll um, they'll come into the shallows of the lake in the pre-dawn and they'll eat little snails and water creatures and they bury their head down in the as they try to prise these things out and so the tail sticks out. Oh yeah. So you yeah. can. Yeah, you've seen it. Great. You get out of the tent and let's say we get out of the tent and we can see seven or eight tails in all the little bays near the tent and um, then we just go and try and target those those tailing fish with a, a tricky, very tricky fish to catch. But let's say we put a little a dry, try them with a dry first and then um, if they don't go for that, dry with a tiny, tiny little dropper down to a, a nymph or a snail and, and try and pick up some. And then let's say a perfect day, you've got like four solid fish that you've brought to the net before the sun's even up. Hmm. That's that, about perfection for me. Sounds, sounds pretty good to me. <laughs> I'm, it almost sounds like freshwater bone fishing. <laughs> yeah, it is a bit like that. Yeah, yeah huh. they're, they're, but they're spooky and uh, it's very easy to come home empty-handed and you've got time pressure, like tick, tick, tick yeah. as the light comes up because they'll only stay there for, once the sun comes up, they're gone. Do you have any carp in your area? We do, yeah. Uh, carp, um, the Murray, the big river system in sort of the southeast of Australia, yeah, there's heaps and heaps of carp in there. Um, and, yeah, most most of the warmer water waterways will have some carp. Hmm. I've seen you them. you got them over there? Oh, yeah. I've seen them tail too. It's, yeah, right. But they're very spooky. And mm. when you talk about mm. sight fishing, I think carp is a fish you can definitely sight fish. Yeah, I think so. They call them like suburban bonefish or something. Don't they? Yeah, yeah, freshwater bones. I've heard them called social spookers. I've heard, yeah, there's, but they, pound for pound, I mean, I, I mean, I've caught some pretty big trout on the fly, but I still have yet uh-huh. to have the runs out of a trout that I have on a carp, and I probably yeah feel like I shouldn't say that out loud, but it's like it's true. It's like wow, they're mm-hmm. they're beasts. Oh, they sure are. Yeah, yeah. No, it's something there's a lot of people are into here. What's the best job? The you, fishing. Best job you've ever had. 
that one's easy. Um, for me, um, being a foreign correspondent was the best job. Um, being in Japan for the four years and just having the privilege of being able to sort of interpret another country for, for your own country's audience was, was great. Hmm. And um, I say that having gone through the tsunami and the nuclear disaster and, um, oh, you know, even having a young family there at the time. And it, so it wasn't all um, fly, fly fishing trips to Hokkaido. <laughs> but, yeah, um, that's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a little blip on the radar. That's more than a blip on the radar. Hmm. Yeah, that was Yeah, great. that was an inter- interesting year. Oh, man, the, the footage from that was crazy. I can only imagine yeah. living there. Hmm. Oh, yeah, and the earthquake was enormous. But, um, yeah, yeah, I think that, I mean, that, that job was so much fun. Um, it sort of ruins you for any other job, to be honest. I think it's like, um, it's just, you know, so engaging and for, for, it just fitted, fitted with my interest as someone who's travelled and interested in other cultures and, uh, Japan's such a fascinating culture, so um, mm. yeah. So that job was was great for me. Most recent book you've read? Good question. I'm just trying to think. I think the latest one was a uh, um, Elmore Leonard book. It was called, um, you know, like a U.S. crime writer. Um, yeah. It was made into a movie about some. Uh, God, um, I should have looked up the title of it. It'll it'll come to me. That's okay. Um, but yeah. Elmore Leonard crime book. Um, oh, Valdez is coming. That's what it was called. Sounds like you got a little um, one yeah. there. <laughs> a little puss. Yeah, yeah. She's come for a, for a cuddle. Oh, that was a cat. It's got a little. Gee, I thought that was. Yeah, I yeah, thought that was a little, little a little child there for a second. Okay. What's your uh, What's your cat's name? Now. Little puss. Um, Mil- Milky. Milky. Yeah, Milky. She's right. a little Burmese. <laughs> e- expert at killing rats. Perfect. She's, Perfect. Yeah. Yeah, so Elmwell End, I think, was the last one. Best fly fishing location you have been that you're willing to tell us about? Uh, a very good question. Um, hmm. There's a few. I would say, just trying to think of the right river. Any of the decent rivers in New Zealand, um, oh, I think the sort of un- you know, because there's there's some sort of signature rivers there, right? Which everyone goes to, like the um, um, Ariti and the Ahuriri. Um, I think there's some really good rivers on the west coast, hmm. um, and um, I, I like to fish and a few less few less people right down south near the glaciers on the west coast. Hmm. Um, so there's one one river down there, the Wataroa. I think it's called the Water Rower, um, which mm-hmm. I like fishing because it's a big, um, it's a big river, but it's like a spring creek. I think it is spring. It's a really strange river. It actually disappears underground and then flows underground for 20k and then pops out the other side. Mm-hmm. And it it it's a clear NZ river with big fish, but it supports uh, because of spring creek. It's a bit more fertile and it supports a higher sort of head of fish. Um, so you might not get a 10-pounder there, but you'll get, like, um, multiple cracks at fish that are sort of five, six. Um, I think um, any of the rivers up north are good as well, northern um, around uh, Nelson sort of area. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. And any of the western lakes, it, it's some – western lakes, there's, there's, you know, 500 good lakes, uh, and it's wow. very much – I'm not being uh, evasive to um, – to conceal spots, but it sort of depends on conditions. Like, you know, once you get to know it well enough, you'll know cloudy day, I fish this one, uh, hot northerly, I fish this one. Um, so it sort of depends a little bit on the day, but, uh, hmm. 
yeah, there's there's some terrific lakes up there. You ever fish the Rangatiki? That's North Island, isn't it? Yeah, of NZ. Yeah, I I had a gentleman yeah, on no, the I show haven't. and he's. He said the average fish is ten pounds, and I'm just like, that sounds that sounds pretty good. But yeah, big rainbows up there. Yeah, I haven't. Um, to be honest, I've never been to the North Island. It's the next um, trip on my list because we're we're going to do a travel bubble thing with those guys soon. I think. Um, so my next big trip, yeah, is probably going to be North East, North Island of NZ, Rangiteki. I'll remember that. Um, yeah, there's some good rivers up there. That's for sure. Yeah. Um. I had a I fished gen- in the south probably ten times, but never the north. I had a gentleman on who's a big time steelhead, and he that he told a story where the guide was putting him on fish, and he's like, "Well, it's, it's it, look at the size of that rainbow in front of the log," <laughs> and he goes, "Look again, that's not a log." That's like a fifteen-pound brown trout. <laughs> yeah, I was oh like, God. "Oh yeah, yeah." Look it up and go back in my catalog there and look up Lonnie Waller and uh, oh wow, Rangitiki. Yeah. Um, so oh wow, I'm gonna throw out a philosophical question at you, man. I, I, is there anything uh-huh. you think as fly fishers we can be doing better? Is there anything that kind of irks you about what we're doing, or are we just all good? <laughs> yeah, I think it's a good question. I think I sound like an old-fashioned answer, but I think here with the stream fishing, there's a bit of kind of etiquette that we need to be mindful of. Like sometimes you'll go to um, New Zealand and um, you'll get people that jump in ahead of you because uh, mm. that stream fishing, I think we just need to be really conscious of each other as as uh, fly fishermen or fly fishers uh, and not be afraid to sort of let like if you park your car like let people know you've gone upstream instead of downstream because you know if they go if they think you've gone downstream and go and you've gone upstream and they fish upstream well they're going to be fishing over spooked fish um, and in NZ you might walk ten, easily walk 10k in a day so you know you can imagine what a waste of time it is to fish 10k of water that's just been fished an hour earlier um so I think that um, I think also just to remember the kind of essence of the experience. It's not you know it sounds funny if someone who's got a gear review website, but it's not a, always about the gear or the having the best gear. It's just you know it, it, graphite carbon fiber rods of like I fish with a Sage XP, like it's a twenty year old rod, but yeah, great rod. I, I don't know. I like it. Mm-hmm. It's like <laughs> partly it's because I'm a tight ass, but I just haven't <laughs> replaced it because I, I like it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's not everyone's experience. You get, like, plenty of people who need to have the latest rod, and that's fine as well. But um, I just think we should also be conscious of introducing new people to the sport all the time and 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 sort of explaining that a second-hand rod can get you into the sport. Um, you don't have to have the, the mm-hmm. tweed vest. and Exactly. You know, um, yeah. yeah, just make it make it as accessible as, as, as we can do. Um, and... Um, I think the other thing, I sound like a bit of a preacher here, but um, yeah, just look after the water. Like, you know, if you get access, don't don't ruin it for everyone by, you know, lighting fires when you're not supposed to or littering or like most of us are fantastic. It's 99% of people, particularly fishers, you don't have to worry about this. But, you know, in today's world, access is a hard one thing and hard, hard one easily lost. Um, yeah. You just don't want decent rivers being locked up. Sounds like a little inclusion and conservation i think so yeah yeah Hmm. yeah inclusion that's a good way to put it 
So if we want to find you, we want to find Rick Wallace out of Melbourne, Australia. We want to we want to follow mm-hmm. along on your your fishing trips, your journey. Throw out your Instagram, your Facebook, your .com. Where do we find you? Yeah, um, so if people want to email me. I spe- encourage people, if they, especially if they want info on fishing in Japan, a lot of people have done that. Um, you can email me on uh, rick at tacklevillage.com. Um, in terms of you'll, – you'll find me on Facebook under my own name, Rick Wallace. Um, we also have a page for Tackle Village, which is just um, Facebook forward slash Tackle Village. Um, and um, also we're building up a YouTube channel for Tackle Village as well. So you can find um, – I'm starting to put a few bit of fishing stuff up on there as well as knot tying and fly tying. Um, like I said, I don't profess to be the greatest tire in the world, but um, if I uh, tie a fly and I can't find someone else – who's got a great video on it, I'll usually record a video myself and put it up. And um, the um, I haven't got enough followers to actually have a branded channel yet, but I'm sure if you put in, you know, Tackle Village Fly Tying and YouTube, you'll be able to find me that way as well. Hmm. Those are probably the main points. I'm on Twitter, I think, but um, I don't use it much and it, it, I don't find it the most inspiring sort yeah. of platform to be on given yeah. the politics involved <laughs> me, me neither but I'm, <laughs> I'm all about instagram and facebook and uh hey, hey rick I, thanks for doing this tonight I, I i really have enjoyed chatting with you and if you ever have anything to promote anything on your mind or if you ever happen to be up in the northern hemisphere and want to chase some some still water trout let me know Oh, I'd love to. And your part of the world is absolutely gorgeous. So um, expect me to take you up on that market. So I've had a great time chatting with you and um, I'd love to get back to that part of the world, especially catching fish and drink some wine. Sounds good to me. We've been chatting today with Rick Wallace out of Melbourne, Australia. He's spent a lot of time in New Zealand, Patagonia, Tasmania, Japan, in Fly Fishing Life magazine and chased Taiman in Hokkaido, Japan. For five years. That really intrigued the heck out of me. Uh, look up the movie Predator. He's in that. Founder of TackleVillage.com and has this really cool hook selection comparison tool. Thanks for tuning in this time around. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by TheFlyCrate.com. Thank you for listening to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Your feedback matters. Let us know if there's a person or topic you'd like discussed. Email us at mark at flyfishing97.com. Until next time, tight lines and we'll see you on the water.